Take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. How many times have you heard me say that? Over 70, I think. Matthew chapter 26 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. Matthew chapter 26 is uh, where we're going to begin looking, and I want to read from verses 1 through 16. Matthew 26, verses 1 through 16. You follow along in your copy of the scriptures, and I'll read from Matthew 26. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar a very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? They asked. This perfume could have, be so, could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. And aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing for me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she, when she poured out this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Have you ever watched the television show Pawn Stars on the History Channel? I've seen a few scenes from it, not very much of it. It's been on the air since 2009. It's, a, it's an alternative. If you're looking for something slightly less classy than Antiques Roadshow, you can watch Pawn Stars. Uh, it takes place at the uh, gold and silver pawn shop outside of Los Angeles, a pawn shop that's been owned and run by a family for a couple of generations. The, the characters in the show, the owners of the shop, Richard Harrison, his son, Rick Harrison, his grandson, Corey Hander Harrison, and a friend named Chumley who works at the store too. Um, most pawn shops are uh, depressing places, desperate people who are selling things they really need to get cash, they think they need even more. But what they focus on at this at Pawn Stars is people who bring highly unusual items to the store to sell. And scenes are all the same. They stop the customer outside. What do you have? It's something unusual. And what do you want for it? Uh, what are you hoping to sell for it? And what's astounding, every single person, they name something and they name an outstanding price uh, that's so high, they're never going to get it. So... Um, and then they take the item into the store, they look at it, they talk about the history of it. Sometimes they get an expert into it, come and appraise it, and then they negotiate the price. No one's item is ever worth as much as they think it is. 
One of the more depressing episodes or scenes that I saw was a man who came in with a first edition uh, Harry Potter book. It was printed in Great Britain, and uh, uh, they had made a a massive run. And then when they saw how popular the book was going to be, they made limited edition, uh, uh, gilt-edged, leather-covered copies of of Harry Potter. This was one of those first ones, and it was signed by the author J.K. Rowling. The owner of this book, they stopped him outside the store. How much do you want for this book? Well, I'm hoping to get $10,000. He walked in, he showed it to him. They talked about Harry Potter a little bit. They called in their expert, their book expert, who talked about the book and examined the signature, uh, uh, the autograph in the book, and found out that it was a forgery of J.K. Rowling's uh, uh, autograph. Oof. So Rick Harrison said, how, how much do you think this is worth then? And she said, actually, it's worth less than nothing. If it were just the book without the forged signature in it, it would be worth a few hundred dollars. But with the signature in it, a false signature, this book should neither be bought nor sold. In fact, it should be destroyed. $10,000. His $10,000 dream vanished. Uh, what he had wasn't worth what he thought it was. I want you to think about that when we come to this section of the Gospel of Matthew, because Jesus, uh, because Matthew in this passage wants you to see over and over again the inestimable worth of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to bear that in mind because we're about to see Jesus go through some terrible things. He's going to be mistreated by crowds and crowds of, of people. And Matthew's argument is they were wrong about Jesus. They were wrong to devalue him in this way. Most people think that he is worth less. And, and, and Matthew says, no, no, no. Knowing him is of inestimable value. In fact, here's a sign that you are growing as a follower of Jesus. It's hard to measure sometimes how you know. How do I know I'm growing as a follower of Jesus? One of the signs that you're growing as a follower of Jesus is that you recognize that knowing him is of greater and greater worth. It's more and more important to you. It's, it's more and more a, a, a wonderful thing to know the Lord Jesus. Even if you're not a Christian, one of the signs that you know that you understand the gospels, that you understand what Matthew's trying to get at, is that you begin to see more and more the wonder of who Jesus is. Um, We just read in chapter 26, uh, the first uh, four scenes uh, of the end here of, of, of the gospel. And Matthew's goal is not just to tell you what happened, not just to inform you, but he wants to change your attitude. He wants to change how you think, how you feel about these events. He's after what happened, and he's after how you should respond. He wants you to, uh, here's a phrase I could use, reappraise Jesus. Reappraise Jesus. How do you estimate him? What worth do you place on knowing him as we get to these final scenes in his earthly life? So here's what I want to do. I want to share with you three things that Matthew wants you to experience as you learn these uh, realities or learn this, this history of what happened. Three things. First of all, Matthew wants you to be comforted by the command of Jesus over his crucifixion comforted by the command of Jesus over his crucifixion. You might be tempted to think that he's lost control. You might be be tempted to think that things are slipping away from Jesus. 
It's not true. His mastery over what's happening, his command of these circumstances is supposed to encourage you. That's the emphasis of these first two scenes that are in verses one through five. We should note, just as we're moving through the book, when when Matthew begins in verse one of Matthew 26, when Jesus had finished saying these things, that's what Matthew writes at the end of all of Jesus' long sermons. Remember, there's five of them in Matthew. We just finished Matthew 24 and 25, and that was a long sermon from Jesus. <laughs> Not as long as the sermons I preached about the long sermon from Jesus, but that was a long sermon from Jesus. And uh, he, uh, this conclusion sentence, he always uses when Jesus had finished saying these things, except here there's this word all, he's done teaching. Matthew is done recording Jesus' teaching Now comes the climax of the book, the reason he came to be crucified and rise again. That all is important. And he says to his disciples in verse 2, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. That should look somewhat familiar to you. Jesus has been predicting his death. He's done it several times. Halfway through his ministry and all the gospels, he starts to tell his disciples about his crucifixion, that it's going to happen. But here he adds more details that instruct the disciples and us about the significance of his coming death and the timing of his coming death. Let's let's think about that, the significance of his coming death first. Here, Jesus mentions the Passover. First time in his um, prediction of his death, he mentions the Passover. It's two days away. Passover, one of the three great Jewish festivals when all Jewish males and many of their families were required to come to Jerusalem to worship. The Passover was a celebration of God's great rescuing of his people from slavery in Egypt. This story is told in the book of Exodus. Many of you know that story very well. You've taught it, you've heard it, you've sung it, you've listened to it, you know it. God sends 10 terrible plagues on the people of Egypt to show his glory, his supremacy over their gods, and to convince Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. Some of the plagues fall on everybody in Egypt. Some of them just fall on the Egyptians and not the Israelites. The 10th plague, the most terrible of them all, was a threat to everybody who lived in Egypt. God said that an angel was going to come, and on one night, he was going to go to every house in Egypt, and he would slaughter the firstborn son of every family. There's only one way to escape this angel, this coming angel. That is to slaughter a lamb, a perfect lamb, and take the blood of that lamb and paint it over your door frame. Eat the lamb inside your house at night as a special meal. And the Israelites, in that instance, were supposed to be ready to go. You have to be in a house covered by the blood to be saved from the angel. And Jesus is telling us about his own death. What is his own death? He is, as it were, a new and better and perfect Passover lamb. He's going to shed his own blood. And if you want to be rescued from God's wrath, you have to be under his blood. You have to be protected by him in his death. That's what Jesus is saying. He's, he's speaking here about, about, he's putting his death in the plan of God. You can also see that by the, the language he uses. He says, the son of man will be handed over. Now, the word handed over is an important word. In this verse, it means that the Jewish leaders are going to hand Jesus over to the Romans. That's true. But this phrase, handed over, this verb, 
paradidomai, is the most common verb in these chapters to describe the death of Jesus. He's handed over. Judas hands him over to the priests. The priests hand him over to Pilate. Pilate hands him over to the soldiers. The soldiers hand him over to death. The the verb hand over is actually used several places in the Bible. To be handed over in the Bible is to be subject to God's judgment. It's an expression of God's judgment. It shows up all the time in the book of Judges, (laughs) a book about judgment. Uh, uh, Look at Judges, just for example, we picked this one verse, Judges 4, 1 and 2. Look what it says. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord said, so the Lord sold them into the hands, that is, he handed them over into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who ruled in Hatzor, Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harasheth Hagoim. But the Israelites sin, God hands them over to Sisera and Jabin. Or, Look, there's several examples in Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, Paul is describing humans' condition before God, and look at how he uses this word, handed over. Romans 1, 24, here's judgment that comes. Therefore, God handed them over. He gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Romans 1, 26, Because of this, God handed them over. He gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. (coughs) It's interesting to consider Romans chapter 1. We live in a world where we are told that our sexuality, we we are experiencing sexual freedom, sexual liberation. We're no longer sexually oppressed. Romans 1 comes along and tells us we're not experiencing, uh, it, with the perversions in our culture, we're not experiencing sexual freedom, we're actually experiencing sexual judgment. Um, so some people years ago, it was very popular to say, God's going to judge this nation for our toleration, for how we tolerate uh, uh, sexual immorality. God's going to judge us because of those things. Romans 1 tells us that those things are the judgment Romans 1, 28 continues this. He says, Furthermore, just as human beings did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God handed them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. To be handed over is to be judged. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, actually, Matthew's reading copy of Isaiah 53, he would have read it in Greek, not in Hebrew, its original language. That same word, paradidomai, is in Isaiah 53, that great prophecy of the Lord Jesus' death on the cross. Now, you're going to have to follow me here for a minute. Matthew read Isaiah 53 from Hebrew into Greek, and there he saw paradidomai. We're going to read it from Hebrew into English, and um, it's, it doesn't say hand it over the way Matthew would have read it, but I'll explain it as I read it. Look at Isaiah 53, 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord, now it says, has laid on him. Matthew's translation would have read, the Lord handed over to him the iniquity of us all. Uh, Isaiah 53, 12, a phrase, he poured out his life unto death, or his soul was handed over to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Verse 12 also says, For he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He bore the sins of many and for their transgressions he was handed over. 
Jesus is using this phrase, I will be handed over. The Son of Man's going to be handed over. He's speaking about the plan of God, and he's speaking about his willingness to participate in it. This is how people will rescue, while God will rescue people from their sins by offering, handing over his son to judgment. Jesus knows about it, and he's a willing participant. He's fully aware of the plan, and he's on board. I suppose that raises the question, how aware are you of God's plans for your life? And are you a willing participant? Now, there's no one in this room I know who is as fully aware of God's plans for your life as you want to be. Huh. Um, there was a, uh, years, for years, Campus Crusade for Christ used a little booklet to share the good news about Jesus with people. It's called the Four Spiritual Laws. And the first of those four spiritual laws was, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Uh, that's an okay sentence. I prefer my version of that. God loves me and I have a wonderful plan for my life. And my plan is way better than God's, I'd like to think. Because my plan involves a lot less suffering than God's plan does for my life. How fully aware are you of God's plan? Not as much as you want to be. Are you a willing participant in God's plans? Jesus talks about the significance of his coming death, and then he talks about the timing of his coming death, too. In the second scene, we, were, we, we learn more about that. Verse 3 begins, then. Now, the word then there can mean just in order. The word then can be an order word. First this happened, then this happened. Or it can be a causal relationship. You did this, and then I did that. You, you're, you acted, and I reacted. And we're not sure if the word then here is a reference to um, a reaction. Jesus speaks about his death, and it, it, here comes the plotters. Maybe. That, that's a possibility. That's the way uh, verse 14 uses the word then. Maybe the same in verse 3. But verses 3 through 5, regardless, talk about the... Um, Chief priests and the elders of the people who are conspiring together, meeting together, gathering together to scheme. Now, you're supposed to think of Psalm 2 when you read this passage. We know that because the Apostle Peter thought about Psalm 2. We know that from the book of Acts. Look at Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. That's what's going on here. Why do the nations conspire and the people's scheme plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers gather together. They assemble together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Now, verses three through five tells about their plan. They want to arrest Jesus. They want to kill Jesus. And they want to do it when? After the Passover. Uh, they arrest Jesus. They kill Jesus. Do they do it after the Passover? No. They want to do it after the Passover. Jesus says it's going to happen during the Passover. Who's right? Oh, Jesus is right. Not them. He's the master of his own crucifixion, the timing of it. He, it's almost like they're incompetent to make plans and he's got to fix their plans for them. No, you're off on your schedule a little bit, boys. Let me help you out here. And actually, you, you see, they got what they wanted. They arrested Jesus. They killed Jesus. And on Friday, Good Friday, they went home satisfied. Spent a good week's work. We got him. We got him. And they went home very satisfied, very happy, and very wrong. Because their plan did not succeed. Why didn't their plan succeed? Because they're not in charge. 
Who's in charge? Jesus is in charge. It's a good motto, maybe. Good questions for you to ask every morning when you wake up. Who's in charge? Jesus is in charge. And based on all we know about him in the Gospel of Matthew, that is good news. It's good news that he's in charge. So you're supposed to be, Matthew wants you to be comforted here by Jesus' command over his own crucifixion. Secondly, Matthew wants you to be inspired by the extravagance of the woman. Inspired by the extravagance of the woman. Now, verse 6 begins this third scene. It's a familiar scene in the Gospels. All four Gospels tell us a story about Jesus being anointed by a woman at dinner. Luke's account is a little bit different. Luke's is in chapter 7 of Luke. It's earlier in Jesus' ministry. It's at the house of somebody named Simon. That's a little confusing. Um, but it's a different woman, and she anoints Jesus for different reasons. Luke, so I think that Jesus was anointed twice, once earlier in his ministry and once here. And Matthew, Mark, and John all tell about this event. John tells us that this identifies the woman. He names her. It's Mary, the brother of Lazarus. Presumably, she's anointing Jesus with, such, with gratitude. You brought my, son back, my brother back from the dead, and now I'll pour this perfume on you. Uh, an act of, of love and, and gratitude. Matthew does not name her, though he's fully capable of doing so. He doesn't because his focus is not on her name. His focus is on the gift that she gave. Text says they're in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. What a terrible nickname that is. Presumably, Jesus had healed him or he wouldn't be in his house. Um, but I guess um, sometimes nicknames stick and you can't lose them and he's still Simon the leper. <laughs> Poor guy. Anyway, they're at this house and the woman comes in and pours out this very expensive jar of perfume over Jesus. Now, there's a debate here that happens in the passage, and I wonder, I want you to, to think about what side of the debate you're on. On the one hand, there's this woman who uses this very expensive perfume to, to, to share with Jesus this lavish, extravagant gift. And on the other hand, there's the disciples who want to use the money for the poor. Which side of the debate would you be on? What's the appropriate use for this very expensive perfume? Should it be sold and given to the poor, or should it be used to anoint Jesus? I have a congregational meeting this afternoon. Let's vote on it, right? Which is the best use? Um, now, how if I change this? Should we use this perfume for this very lavish, extravagant gift towards Jesus, or should we use it for missions and send five families to Morocco for the next 10 years? Which side of the debate are you going to be on? This is Lancaster County. Some of you come from very good Mennonite stock. And our Mennonite brothers and sisters are good people. We love them dearly. We give thanks to God for them. But the words lavish and extravagant are not in my top 10 list of words I would use to describe our Mennonite brothers and sisters. Some of you, you have a very strong preference for what works, what's necessary, what's adequate. I know you don't always have a choice about that. I understand that. But... But is something like this ever okay? Five years ago, there was a wedding. It was reported on the newspaper in the city of Moscow between a 20-year-old college student and her 28-year-old fiancé, who is the son of a Russian oil tycoon and media billionaire worth $6.2 billion. 
This is how the wedding went. It was held in the, one of the largest, uh, most impressive restaurants in Moscow. And for the wedding, they covered all of the walls with fresh flowers. They imported furniture from Paris for this wedding. Uh, the 600 guests sat down uh, to eat fresh sushi and a lavish dinner that was served. Uh, the the uh, bride's custom gown weighed 28 pounds, all of the, the uh, luxurious fabric and jewels that were part of her gown. For entertainment at the reception, they had um, Sting perform and Enrique Iglesias. He was just the warm-up for the main act, though. Jennifer Lopez came and sang at this wedding reception. Uh, the wedding party traveled around Moscow in a fleet of Rolls Royces. The, the wedding favors that they handed out to all the guests, custom-made jewelry boxes. Some of you gave away a box of matches. And, and here, now there's custom jewelry boxes. They estimated the cost of this wedding, $1 billion. Some of you think that's a terrible crime. Uh, is it okay to do lavish, extravagant things for Christ's sake? What's, what makes that harder, a harder question to ask is, ask and answer, is that Jesus has just given an account of the judgment at the end of the age of sheep and goats where he identifies himself with the poor. He identifies with the poor. And, and here's this lavish, extravagant thing done for him. And the disciples say, what about the poor? Jesus, it's interesting, Jesus doesn't settle the issue, does he? He doesn't actually tell them who's right and who's wrong. He is actually more concerned about how the disciples were shaming her. Here she's done this grand act for the Lord Jesus, and the disciples are elbowing each other and, and talking about how she shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't have done that. I don't know what she thinks she's doing. Terrible waste of money. I know how to use it better than she does. Terrible. And Jesus says, stop. Knock it off. Stop shaming her. Um, they were more concerned with the poor, not even in the room, than they were with this dear woman who was actually there. And it's the disciples who should have been embarrassed. They have no clue. Jesus has been telling them for 18 months what's going to happen to him, and they have no clue that his death is near. And this woman actually understands. She and Judas are the only ones in the room besides Jesus who know what's going to happen to him. And the disciples, in their cluelessness, are clomping all over this woman. Jesus says, stop. He doesn't settle this issue, Jesus doesn't, but, but perhaps it encourages us, does it, would you, can it encourage us to, um, uh, to settle down a little bit in our, our quick trigger? You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't be that lavish. You shouldn't be that extravagant. I know how to use that money better. What's wrong with you? Maybe, maybe this passage teaches us a little bit to to take a breath, are there seasons in which extravagance for Jesus' sake is okay? Maybe just take a breath and calm down a little bit. This, is not, this passage is not an encouragement by Jesus. Some people have read it this way. To ignore the poor, you know, we'll never cure poverty, so why try? That's not what he's saying here. 
what, what happens here is meant to inspire us. It's meant to move us and to make us think about the length of our own devotion to Jesus. She honored him with the most valuable thing she owns. That's not a waste. It's never a waste. He is worthy of being honored with the most valuable thing that you own. I wonder if she ever missed the perfume bottle. This lovely alabaster jar. I don't, I don't know how big it would have been. But this is the sort of thing that you put out on a shelf in your house. Sort of thing that you put on display and you, you think about and look at and admire. And I wonder if she ever missed that jar after this day when it wasn't there anymore. She ever thought about it. Your sense of smell, I have heard, I don't know if this is true or not, your sense of smell is the sense that you have with the best memory. And you wonder if, well, I wonder a lot of things about this scene. I wonder if, I wonder if in two days when he hung on the cross, if when you were walking by, you could still smell this. I wonder that. And I wonder if for the rest of her life, when she would smell something that was even close to this wonderful perfume, if if she missed that jar. I don't think so. I don't think so because Jesus said, you have done a beautiful thing for me. Brothers and sisters, my hope for you is that this would be said of you by the Lord Jesus. You have done a beautiful thing for me. Now, in comparison, in contrast to this woman, we're supposed to think about Judas now. And number three, what does Matthew want you to be? He wants you to be repulsed by the treachery of Judas. Repulsed by the treachery of Judas. Uh, That's why Matthew tells the story the way he does. So he's got the chief priests plotting, then the, the woman, and then Judas There's intentional contrast going on. You're supposed to read this and say, one of the 12, one of the 12, what? One of the 12? No. Yes. Judas. A lot of ink has been spilled about Judas's motives here. Why is he doing what he's doing? The Gospels never lay it out for us explicitly. The closest they get, though, is uh, what Matthew writes here, simple greed. Simple greed. What will you give me if I turn him over to you, if I hand him over to you? What will you give me? And they say 30 pieces of silver. Um, That's an allusion to two passages of Scripture. You're supposed to read that and say to yourself, that is cheap. That's cheap. It's so cheap. Here's the allusions that he's making to one to Zechariah 11. In Zechariah 11, the prophet is picturing himself as a shepherd who's being fired or being sent away because the sheep don't want him anymore. And look what Zechariah 11, 12, and 13 say. If you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver, and the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. The handsome price, that's sarcasm, my love language. The handsome price at which they valued me, it's nothing, it's nothing. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. Or Exodus 21, 32. Uh, here's some case law about what happens if your bull gets loose and hurts someone. If the bull gores a male or female slave, the owner must pay 30 shekels of silver to the master of the slave, and the bull is to be stoned to death. 30 shekels is the price for a wounded slave. And that's how much Judas is willing to sell the Lord Jesus for. 
He didn't even negotiate. I mean, at least on Pawn Stars, they negotiate. He didn't even negotiate with them. Try and get more. 30? Okay, that's fine. I'm, that's good. Judas, how, how could you sell the Lord so cheaply, Judas? How can you value him so poorly? Is he really that insignificant to you? And the question turns on us as we read these last chapters of Matthew. Is Jesus really that insignificant to you? I see signs in your life, dear friends, evidence in your life that he is not this insignificant to you. I see it in the lavish generosity that you have. I see it in your perseverance in following the Lord Jesus in difficult days. I was at the lab this week getting my blood drawn for a physical. It'd be really helpful if I could lose 50 pounds by tomorrow. Cutting off my leg is my only option. <laughs> I was getting my blood drawn, and there on the, on the uh, 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 lab was a sign. It said, you'll recognize this, due to severe staff shortages. Recognize that phrase? We have one at church right now. Due to severe staff shortages... Um, your lab wait time may be longer than usual. Uh, while the phlebotomist was searching for my vein, I, I said to her, uh, ooh, severe so staff shortages, that doesn't sound pleasant. Have, have you had to work a lot of extra hours or have, have you missed some of your days off? And she said, well, that hasn't been too bad, but we've been really busy when we're in here. And I said, well, I, I, I hope that people have been kind to you about that. And she said, oh, no. She said, 18 months ago, we were the healthcare worker heroes. We were the awesome ones who are saving America from the pandemic. And now we're just lazy and incompetent. And we don't really care about our jobs and we're not working very hard. She said, the people have not been very nice, hence the sign. Uh, and, and I said to her, I said, you know, well, what, one of the things that the pandemic has done clearly to us is it's made us all a little bit angrier and all a little bit more anxious. Everybody's just a little angrier and a little bit anxious. Do you know what changes that though? Having Jesus as your treasure. Having Jesus as your treasure. When the world around you, uh, when uh, media and, and entertainment and social media, and when they're discipling you, and severe staff shortages, are discipling you to be angry and anxious, if Jesus is your treasure, that discipleship doesn't stick quite as much, quite as well. Do you know Indiana Jones? Not personally. You don't know Indiana Jones personally. But you know who Indiana Jones is. Indiana Jones, that great character that Harrison Ford has played in, I don't know, 62 movies. And uh, Indiana Jones is an archaeologist, and he goes around the world finding hidden treasures. And uh, he is an adventurer, and he goes to dangerous places, and he marches through jungles, and he avoids native tribes, his territory he's invading, and he, he, uh, uh, he survives snake pits and, and, and booby traps in, in these caves in which he goes to hunt for treasure. Why does he do that? All because of those glittering jewels and all because of that gold. It makes it all worth it. He's got a treasure that changes how he feels about the dangerous circumstances that he volunteers for. Do you have a treasure who changes how you navigate this anxious, angry world in which we live? Jesus is not a commodity, but as you know him more, you know he's of ever-increasing value. 
It's a value that's protected from recessions and inflation and depression and pandemics and crashes. Knowing his worth is a sign that you understand what these events in Matthew 26, 27, and 28 really mean. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you today and we give you thanks for your great kindness to us through the Lord Jesus. And we thank you too uh, for this woman who is to be honored when her story is read, as the Lord Jesus says. Oh, Lord, we would be so devoted to you that, that our lives would be laid down lavishly at your disposal, you who are our great Savior. You, you, you laid down your life gladly for us, willingly for us, understanding what would happen, you with mastery over it, and, and, and you have mastery over our lives too. Why would we not trust you more? Oh, help us. Uh, may it be, Lord, that we are more discipled by the treasure of the Lord Jesus than by our circumstances that surround us. Help us, oh help us, we pray. We ask these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.